Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of movie scores that are considered worth talking about, and we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us James Horner's score for the 1997 epic romantic disaster film, Titanic. Titanic was written by James Cameron, based on the boat of the same name. (laughs) It was produced by James Cameron and John Landau, and Paramount Pictures and 20th Century Fox. And it was directed by James Cameron. John, tell the people about Titanic. Titanic is a big movie about a big ship and some big feelings and some big amounts of time and scope and... Some big problems, I thought you were going to say. (laughs) And some big problems. It stars Leo, Nardo DiCaprio, as Jack, a guy, and Kate Winslet as Rose, a girl, who fall in love on Titanic, a boat... A ship. A ship. That's right. It also stars Billy Zane as Rose's horrible fiance, Frances Fisher as her mother, Bill Paxton and Gloria Stewart in the present day, and then Kathy Bates, Victor Garber, Bernard Hill, and a lot of other people as historical figures who were actually on the Titanic. A lot of people. It's a big boat. (laughs) Ship. So the RMS Titanic, the biggest ship ever built, will it hit an iceberg and sink? Yes, everybody knows this. (laughs) Will Jack and Rose fall in love before it does? Yes, everybody knows that, too. Let's go along for the ride. Good enough? Good enough. Andy, do you remember seeing this when it came out? We were in college. Yeah, I asked you earlier. It seemed possible to me that we saw this together, but you say that seems unlikely. And I think it did come out on winter break. Is that right? Yeah, it did come out over Christmas time. And I think I saw it in the theater during that break. And then it's possible that I saw it again because it was in theaters for a real long time the following year. Yes, for those who weren't there at the time, it is essential to point out that Titanic was the biggest hit ever and still is one of the biggest hits ever. Yes, it was a massive global hit that kept going and going all around the world. In fact... It went on and on, to quote the lady. Yes, Titanic is still the third highest grossing film in history, and it is an outlier in the top 25 for being so early. It is the earliest of those films, and then there's the Lord of the Rings movies, and then there's Avatar, and then there's a lot of Marvel movies and things in the past 10 years because the scale of these things has gone up and up. But Titanic really was the first, in a sense, of that scale of production and success. You know, it's impossible not to think back to when we talked about Ben-Hur winning all the Oscars that it won and saying, well, it got all these awards because it was the most picture. James Cameron really set out to make a movie that was the most picture and, you know, be this era's Ben-Hur, I think. And I feel like at the time, part of the excitement and the interest of the movie was that it seemed distinctly old-fashioned in how it was treating the movie theater and the business of being a big show. There hadn't been big shows like that in a long time. I think that's right. I think a lot of the anticipation of the movie was also driven by the stories of it going massively over budget and delayed. And people were kind of licking their chops, I think, for it to be a big failure because it seemed like it was this enormous swing that could easily miss. But 
connected for sure. Yeah. In reading up on stuff, I came across this article, just wanted to read the very end of it. This is from the LA Times, January 6, 1998. So that's just as Titanic was starting to show its its legs at the box office. Its sea legs. Its sea legs, exactly. This is an article called Titanic, Good Filmmaking, Bad Business Move. And most of the article is talking about how even if people love the movie, even though it's doing well, even though it might, in fact, incredibly make back its investment, even though that would require it to be the highest grossing movie of all time, it might do that and it might make it back. This is still not how you should make movies. You shouldn't put in all this money. <laughs> and even the people who invested in it are saying, yeah, we're really trying to avoid costly flops, uh, such as this year's Speed 2 Cruise Control and Volcano. <laughs> but then the last two lines of the article. But it's also possible that a successful Titanic could raise the bar on the industry's already stratospheric production costs. Quote, it probably will. And it's disgusting, says the head of one studio. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I guess now that teases up, Andy. How disgusting do you think that this is? Um, yeah, I have to have at best mixed feelings about this movie because I do not like where it has led us in terms of movies or movie music. That shadow of the future hangs over my impression of this movie. I do think it is kind of disgusting what <laughs> producers learned from this movie and what composers learned from this score, which also was an unprecedented success as scores go. This album was a bestseller and went to number one on the Billboard yeah. charts, which I think had never happened for an orchestral score album before. That's correct. This score and this song crucially, you know, which was the headline track on the album, went up to number one and stayed there just the same way the movie did. Yeah. So even if I completely wholeheartedly adored Titanic and its score, it would still weigh on me to think what it did by being <laughs> so huge. Well, that's interesting. What did it do? And what did the score do along those lines? I have some criticisms of this score, and I think that all of those criticisms are more applicable and more of a problem in later scores and in scoring in general in the years to come. And I can't help but see this moment, maybe not just Titanic, but, you know, this as this kind of transitional time between a school of movie scoring that I felt pretty excited about and a school of movie scoring that's pretty ubiquitous now that I don't feel that excited about and don't love so much. And yeah, I assume that over the course of this conversation, we'll characterize some of that. Well, I have some criticisms of this score too, but now I'm wondering if they're the same as yours. Because for me, this score divides pretty distinctly into stuff that I feel is perfectly confident and getting the job done and churning away just as it should, and stuff where I am truly baffled by some of the decision-making. It's sort of the bigger budget stuff, the action scoring and the enormous set-piece scoring that I'm more okay with in this score. Yeah, well... You know, one of us often asks the other, do you have a favorite scoring moment in this movie? I think uh, if I do, it's a moment in one of those sections. Do you have a favorite moment? I have a favorite cue, I would say. And I have a favorite move. I'm not sure I can boil it down to one moment. But I'm going to single out, I think the cue is called Hard to Starboard, which is the cue when they hit the iceberg. Yeah, that's where my favorite stuff is too. Great. 
Yeah, I think that this is a really successful cue. I think it lands so well partially because it sounds different than the stuff we've heard before, but it was an interesting problem for Horner to have to solve this obviously crucial moment in the story to make it feel exciting and tense and suspenseful when we got to see the previs for this sequence in the beginning of the movie. They told us exactly what was going to happen. Now, as the water level rises, it spills over the watertight bulkheads, which unfortunately... I mean, many people have pointed out that presentation is kind of a brilliant device because it releases the movie later from having the responsibility of doing any of that explaining of what's going on. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that really was a candy choice to spell out exactly the moves that the ship was going to make, you know, how it was going to break apart, and so that when that was happening, we didn't have to try to understand what was happening. Yeah. But so Horner here, you know, he's scoring something that has to be exciting, but again, that we know what's going to happen. And I think he finds a good way to convey inertia, you know, both the forward momentum of the ship that they're not able to stop in time and the immutable, you know, immovable object of the iceberg. He sets up this repeating note you know, interestingly, there are kind of these uneasy major chords on top of it that seem to be in tension with the tension. Yeah, we really picked out exactly the same thing as the standout in this three-hour movie, so uh, <laughs> it must really be the standout moment. I just think it captures exactly the right feeling. This is big. These are big forces at play. You knew it was coming. You could see it coming from as far off as they should have seen the iceberg coming. So I'm not asking you to be very surprised or excited, but dig this. Yeah. It feels very right. As you're saying, we have been told, not just in our historical knowledge that the Titanic, it sank, but that in the movie itself, we've been told that the Titanic sank. Right. And the perspective of the viewer is always a little bit aware of the tragic romance of this fated tragedy. Mm -hmm. What Horner has to pull off in making that loom is subtle and I agree these chords are just right because they know that we know something the characters don't know. <laughs> it's a good balance of the uncertainty that the characters feel and the certainty that we feel. Yeah, that's right. Certainty and uncertainty balanced. And I think we're talking about these chords that are sort of more towards the end of the cue after the hit has happened, but also the beginning of this cue, the way it springs into action is really exciting. It introduces this kind of clanging noise and a percussive rhythm that we haven't had before. Kind of running around these unpredictable rhythms with these unpredictable clangs. I agree that it works. I think that when you listen to it by itself, these clangs feel a little more brutal than maybe is necessary. But there's a reason for that, and this is, I guess, an opportunity to bring up an issue that might be a running theme here, which is, did you know that this music is not entirely original to this movie? Yeah, I did know that. All right, okay. <laughs> Still works, but... Uh... Well, this is basically a lift from a prior James Horner score that Cameron was using in his 
Temp, his editing score, I think before he had even hired James Horner, and it's possibly part of why he turned to James Horner to hire him for this. I think it is because Horner scored James Cameron's movie Aliens, plural, and they had a terrible working relationship and a terrible experience with that movie. It seemed like they never wanted to work with each other again. Yeah, it had been 10 years earlier. So that was 10 years ago. The relationship thawed. Yeah, and Cameron wound up temping this part of the movie with... This is the opening scene from Courage Under Fire with Denzel Washington and Meg Ryan from the previous year, which I guess was one of the most recent soundtracks that James Cameron had bought. It's a battlefield cue in Courage Under Fire, which is why those clangs are so aggressive. It makes sense there. All saber units, this is Saber 6. We just lost one of our tanks. Did anybody see the shoot? I didn't see anything. So then to match the temp track, Horner recomposed it for Titanic as running around on the ship trying to avoid the iceberg. I agree that it works really well, and I think generally James Cameron's temp track impulses have something to offer, even if it's not entirely a musically coherent thing to offer. So I think that Horner did piece together a pretty compelling track. My favorite part of this track was that after all of the panic to try to avert the impending crash, When the actual crash happens, when the iceberg is scraping the ship, Mm -hmm. the intensity of the music suddenly drops away and it becomes just this quiet shiver. He doesn't play it at all as, oh no, bam, which is such a standard way to play something bad that's about to happen and then does happen, kablamo. It's the opposite. There's a a hush. As soon as the tragedy is a fact, then the perspective shifts to its implications. Mm -hmm. And these rising scales kind of build up our appreciation of the implications. And this is a really crucial juncture in the movie because we've been essentially just watching the love story up to this point. And this is where it has to bring in the historical tragedy that underpins the whole thing. It's such a touchy matter how you relate those because, you know, is it in good taste to make a movie like this at all about a real world tragedy? Uh, You have to sell to people that the love story is not just a parasite living (laughs) off of a real world tragedy. And then contrary, that the real world tragedy is not just some kind of costume that the love story is putting on to seem grander, that these things both exist in this movie and both are to be taken seriously. And this is kind of the moment where he has to navigate that. think that by really taking care with what the audience should be feeling at each point in this long extended sequence it's not just Mm -hmm. you know a couple minutes it's how long is it like eight minutes yeah seven something yeah it's a process you have to be led through and the music does lead you through some with the back music and some with his repeated notes it's pretty masterful i think you know we're talking about the moment when the romance intersects with the tragedy the movie kind of suggests that the romance directly led to the tragedy to some degree, because the lookouts are distracted by Jack and Rose canoodling on the deck and don't see the iceberg in time. Look at this. Oh, look at this. 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 Look
look at that, would you? Although, I'm gonna posit that in fact, it's not that Jack and Rose distracted the lookouts, it's that they didn't distract the lookouts enough. They should have been more exciting to look at because if the lookouts had gone longer without seeing the iceberg and had sent the order to try to turn the ship later, ironically, if they had not been able to turn the bow of the ship away from the iceberg and they had hit it head on rather than the glancing blow along the side, there would have been a lot of damage, but the ship would not have sunk. Yeah, that's right. That's the big tragedy of the Titanic, that it was pretty unsinkable. It just wasn't prepared for being sliced all the way down the side. Yeah, five compartments instead of four. Yeah, you're right. It's Jack and Rose's fault for not being hotter. <laughs> anyway, I agree with you. I think this is a really strong cue, even though part of it sounds like another movie. I think Horner deserves a lot of credit for making this scene work as well as it does. Yeah, I agree. Horner definitely knows what he's doing. He's a pro. The fact that we're pretty soon into the episode talking about him borrowing from himself <laughs> is, I guess, fair enough because that is a criticism that is often leveled against him, not just, you know, having a similar approach to things, but actually lifting his own work and reapplying it, which, you know, we've talked about other composers doing in certain circumstances. I feel like you hear people complaining about Horner doing that more than other people. He's accused of lifting his own stuff and lifting other people's stuff. Yeah. And I think there might be a reason that it's said about him a little more. All right. Why do you think that Horner is particularly susceptible to this charge? Well, this relates to what I'm saying about my reservations about the score as a whole. I feel like Horner's adherence to the temp track or to his inspirations, mm -hmm. his borrowings, his resemblances, just give an impression of less compositional digestion and integration hmm. than other composers. I feel like different scenes in this movie and different material in this score is just different stuff, uh, all of which James Cameron or James Horner decided should go in this movie. And actually, that's an important point. We know that a lot of how this score ended up is Cameron's doing, very explicitly. So it's not necessarily fair to Horner to talk about his predilections and his strengths and his weaknesses in relation to this score, it's kind of unfortunate that this is our first Horner score because it's tempting to try and generalize about him, but we probably shouldn't. So why don't we just talk about some of the other kinds of stuff that are in this score, regardless of who put them there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, boy, there are some other kinds of stuff than the music we have been talking about so far. Yeah. The movie starts out with this uh, submarine dive, these remote-controlled submersibles that Bill Paxton is directing guys to control. When we finally cut to the surface and we see the ship that he is on in the present day, in the present day of the movie, we hear this melody. which seems like it's setting up an association with the surface of the ocean or a ship on the surface of the ocean. I mean, I did note that as kind of a funny introduction of a theme because it, in a normal movie, would be the theme for whatever we're actually seeing right now. That ship were for, you know, Bill Paxton and his team. I guess that there's no audience member who's so dumb as to think that Bill Paxton gets this music, <laughs> but... It's so glorious at a point in the movie where pretty much just the visual or the idea of the ocean is what's glorious. Yeah, that's right. I think that's what it's the theme for. 
And that's borne out when Gloria Stewart shows up in a helicopter landing on this ship on the ocean. Uh, we hear this same melody. Seems to be melody for a ship, I think. And yes, now sure enough, Gloria Stewart starts to tell her story. Titanic was called the ship of dreams. We get some piano tinkles. And it was. They lead as it the camera really fades was. back in time to this string buildup. And we land on the same melody. We now see Titanic in all her glory at the dock in Southampton being laded for her voyage. So great, so this is the theme for the ship and for a ship at sea. It's a fine melody. It reminds me of that Rod Stewart song, Have I Told You Lately That I Love You. Have I told you lately that I love you? I saw some people saying that it sounds a little like a folk song of the leaving of Liverpool, this tune. Which may have been deemed relevant, hard to say. But the thing that I really have to talk about here, mm -hmm. the thing that absolutely made my jaw drop, I could not believe that this was how the movie actually was. Are you saying that your jaw dropped in 2020 because you didn't remember this? Because I remembered this. Yes. My jaw dropped watching this movie in 2020 because I did not remember that all of these kind of iconic beauty shots, which still hold up, which look great, these shots, you know, these were a lot of early CGI. Cameron definitely deserves credit for accomplishing this kind of visual, but I did not remember that what accompanied these visuals was this synth voice instrument. You lent me a copy of the film to watch, and I honestly considered for a moment, <laughs> is Andy punking me? Did he somehow get his hands on a version where they replace the music with some kind of rinky-dink synth version of it? I couldn't believe this was the actual music for this. What a brilliant prank that would be if I said, here's a copy of the movie, John, and then I had made a whole fake score to trick you into talking about. That would be a fun episode of the show, I think. <laughs> Let's see if we can pull that off. Yeah, this is somebody playing a synth patch on a keyboard. And it is like a breathy voice patch that really sounds like it was out of the same general MIDI Casio keyboard that we were complaining about in Princess Bride. Yeah, a slightly different keyboard. Okay. But a keyboard of the same era. But crucially, you can hear it being played on a keyboard. I know I harp on this sometimes, that sounds are being produced by instruments other than what they're representing themselves to be. But you can really hear how this is somebody playing a chord with their three fingers on the keyboard going, bop, bop. Bup, bup, and it's just not anything like how it would sound if someone were singing this. Agreed. 
I am surprised that this surprised you because this is, to me, so essentially characteristic of Titanic 1997, this choice. Again, maybe I am particularly attuned to this because in my work, I have spent a lot of effort trying to make sampled instruments not sound like they were sampled instruments and trying to massage them so that you can't hear that it's me playing chords on the keyboard with my three fingers rather than a real section of musicians. But like there's an effect in MIDI sequencing, synthestration, you know, back from this time period when these kinds of sampled instruments were being developed, where it's the same sample, you're hearing the same sound, just pitch modified. And so each instance of the sound is exactly the same, and it's sometimes referred to as like a machine gun effect that each instance is just the same it sounds distinctly unnatural it does yes so like you know why does this bother me so much it bothers me i think because it's <laughs> it sounds bad i think it sounds bad i guess that's ultimately what i want to say i think that these synth voices sound bad they sound bafflingly unnatural and facile. All right, well, let's try and unbaffle you a little bit. Okay. Because it's intentional, John. Oh, I know it's intentional. I know that it's definitely intentional. Uh, like I say, I couldn't believe that a whole movie production was okay with these shots, these sweeping, big, romantic, simulated crane shots. I remembered these shots, and it's crazy to me that <laughs> this is the music for it. Are you saying that it is particularly foolish to put synthetic sounds over a special effect that is itself striving to seem as little synthetic as possible because I think that is a reasonable complaint but is kind of an anachronistic complaint. I just don't think at the time they were quite aware of all of the associations with CGI that would get built up. It was just a new technology. No, that's fine. And like I said, I thought the CGI held up pretty well. I wasn't bothered by it. Yeah, I think it escapes from seeming too much like it's coming from the same place the synthesizer is coming from in terms of being computery. Right. So the disconnect for me was that, like we were saying at the beginning of this episode, the movie seems to be reaching for this old-fashioned grandiosity. You know, it seems like Cameron wanted to reach back to golden age filmmaking, and then he planned these camera shots to really evoke that. Just this camera, when it's flying by the bow of the ship, this is not what that camera thought it was going to be here. It feels very disconnected to me. So where does this sound come from? Yeah. In terms of James Cameron's intentions. We know what it is supposed to resemble and what was used on the temp track and what James Cameron wanted here. And the word for it is Enya. Enya. He used the New Age Celtic artist Enya's music all through the temp track. He actually used it on the first teaser that he put out in the spring before he had even hired a composer. It has Enya's music in it. pieces it has in it is Enya's song Book of Days which sounds like Are this. You ready to go back to Titanic? Yep, which was the credit song for the movie Far and Away from earlier in the 90s. That's right. In fact, this teaser also uses some John Williams music from Far and Away, so James Cameron apparently had a Far and Away soundtrack out on his editing desk. 
It is reported that James Cameron was so enamored of the effect of combining Enya's music with his Titanic footage that he approached Enya to write the score. Mm -hmm. And she turned down the offer. She refused because Enya works with Enya. Enya does not (laughs) collaborate with people imposed on her by someone like James Cameron, who told her that she could write a song, but it would be a collaboration and it would be coordinated. She said, I'm not working with Enya. Is that a pun? I'm not working with any of ya. <laughs> Is that a pun? Um, she said no, because she just wanted to do it herself or not at all. So then when he went to James Horner, he said, I really want it to sound like this and played him Enya tracks. Yep. In fact, yeah, he played him this Enya track, which, uh, hey, look at that. It's going boop, 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 boop. Yeah, it's the same rhythm and it is the same general sound. I think that to complain about how synthy this sounds is to miss the point of Enya, which I don't hold against you that you missed the point of Enya. (laughs) You know, I'm not an Enya fan, but I can understand that in the aesthetic experience that Enya's music offers its listeners, something is happening other than synthesizers doing a bad job sounding like non-synthesizers. Yeah. The fact that it's synthetic is very important to what this music is about. Yeah, of course that's true, and I have to get my head around that. But tell me why it gels with this movie. That's what I was having trouble with. Well, I feel like the value of synthesizer sounds, the value of synthetic sounds, can be that... Because you can tell that they are not produced by a real-world resonating body, you can tell that there's no source for them, that they are sort of invented out of thin air by magic. They seem to be coming from inside your head in a way that Hmm. acoustic music isn't. At least that's the effect for me. Okay, thin air, that's, I think, an important phrase because the particular synth patches that he chooses for the Titanic score, which if you look in the manuscript, he calls for, he writes out breathy synth voice and things like that. This breathy synth voice just always felt particularly offensively nothing. It's like it's made out of styrofoam peanuts or uh, it's the like synthetic padding inside of a cheap seat cushion. It's, it's like this non-substance standing in for where a substance would be just because it happens to be able to occupy volume. But it's it's not, it's just... I agree that it's nothing. I think <laughs> yeah. when Enya does it, it is not just styrofoam. It is, I mean, I think that what she is aiming for is an absolute nothing that because it has no substance, it relates more directly to your dreams and to your okay. internal dream life. I think that's what the point of that music is to the people who like it. Okay, so Horner must have made the decision that he was going to play against the enormous substantiality of this enormous ship with this airy, breathy, nothing dream headspace. I think Cameron made that choice. I guess you're right. Cameron made that choice by temping it with Enya in the first place. Again, I've seen where Horner in an interview talks about how he felt like it was so important to capture this sense of ethereality. And yeah. So I guess that's a decision. It didn't work for me because my experience of it just wasn't, oh, I see, I'm looking at a grand, enormous ship But I'm also at the same time thinking about its dreamy timelessness. To me, it just felt like I was being told two different things that were working against each other. And importantly, instead of sounding timeless, I think it winds up sounding very dated. 
if you take Horner's assignment to be constrained by, you have to satisfy James Cameron. You have to write a large orchestra score that at this moment and this moment and this moment sounds like new age Enya synthesizer <laughs> music and goes yeah. smoothly from one to the other. That is a brutal challenge. And I think that when you listen on the soundtrack, I think you can hear him trying to embrace that and figure out a solution to it. I do agree with you that in the movie, the finesse that he's able to come to isn't quite enough to pull it off. It isn't enough to convince you that it makes sense to go from here to here. But it's an attempt. I like how he tries to relate it to harps and pianos there, contrast it. It almost works. Yeah. And maybe, it's, again, I think I'm going to chalk it up to this particular choice of synth sound. This breathy voice, I think, is particularly offensive to my... I think it just intrinsically sounds bad. <laughs> Sorry. I think it's a bad sounding sound. Well, you know, another thing he does, and I don't know if it was on the temp track, but it seems to be in the back of his head, at least, is he incorporates the bass... And at one point, the breathing sounds oh, from I... uh, another famous <laughs> piece of synth music, the theme from Chariots of Fire. Yep. That shows up, I think, really prominently at the very end of the movie. That's right. The last thing you hear in the movie is a clip tracked in from the earlier cue when Rose is put on a lifeboat and she decides she can't leave without the very recent love of her life, Jack, and jumps back onto the sinking ship. And then he's embracing her, saying, you're so stupid, Rose, you're so stupid. <laughs> that is scored with a cha-cha-cha-cha-cha because they've linked their fates together eternally and now their love is echoing down the halls of time. You're so stupid. Why'd you do that, huh? You're so stupid, Rose. And then, yes, you hear that same music again when it's tracked in at the very end. This is something where I can really hear the tracking in. You can hear where there's a very uncomfortable fudging transition. Oh, it's terrible, and it's extraordinarily exposed. All you were doing is listening to music and watching uh, special effects animation. Yeah, and you hear just, uh, there's music playing, and now there is some other music playing, and we're going to unceremoniously fade between them, and you get to hear them rub against each other the whole way. This is for the moment at the end of the movie after Gloria Stewart you know, has finally come to the end of her long and wonderful and accomplished life and we're one last time traveling back in time and so we're seeing the wreck at the bottom of the sea fade back into living reality, the very last gesture of the movie. And that transition, that fade from wreck to living boat is accompanied by this mishmash. Yes, and I think this is probably the moment to point out that in fact almost the entire time James Cameron and his editors have had their way with Horner's score, and you are not really hearing complete tracks played through. You're not hearing things at the times they were composed for. There is a lot of chopping things into bits and juxtaposing things, and I'm not sure we've talked about a score that is as abused as this one is, and it is a thing that happens very often, but it does make the task of, you know, having a critical assessment of the score kind of complicated because if you listen on the soundtrack and hear, oh, he uh, he actually composed something more cohesive and with a clearer intention than what I heard in the movie, uh, what does that count for? I don't know. It's certainly the case at the beginning of this movie, the first 10 minutes of this underwater sequence with the submersibles and Bill Paxton trying to find a jewel in the wreckage. He wrote 10 minutes of continuous music that has a flow to it.
And what you hear instead is just different forms of mush that's trying to be evocative. And in fact, there are some compositional moves that are completely obscured in the final movie that would have been established here. He has this figure in the bass. Which is kind of a sunken ship figure you'd hear when you first saw the wreck. Then Horner planned to bring that back at the moment when Rose is contemplating suicide and looks down into the black waters that she's about to kill herself by jumping into. You were going to hear that morbid sunken ship motif. Which would have been traditional film scoring move to try to make connections and draw you through and Cameron has just smushed that it's just not available to the listener so any criticisms we have of Horner and the effect of the score need to take that into account yeah fair Uh, oh anyway back to Enya there is more to be said about Enya and yet just keep on going with it (laughs) is that a pun John (laughs) I don't I don't understand I think Cameron wanted that music in there because he had a very particular idea of how the period recreation aspect of this movie would play to a contemporary audience. I think he wanted to avoid the weight that period movies usually have, that kind of stasis that comes from, well, this is how things were 100 years ago. The way it distances the audience, I think it was important to him to have a musical sound that made it not about period and not about history, but about immediately accessible emotions and, yeah, kind of dreamlike emotions that cast the whole thing as a romance rather than a set of facts. And to him, I think Enya and this New Age Celtic sound was the epitome of that. It is the least historical sound possible. (laughs) And I think he got something right about that. I think the place that this movie goes, which is so often scoffed at, you know, it's such an easy target for rolling your eyes, this movie, because it does such a fundamentally cheesy thing so wholeheartedly. And this is it. It's to say, this is the Titanic, it's 1912, but it's going to be a music video at heart. It's going to have the same spirit in it that a pop song does. Right. Yeah, so I think that juxtaposition that you're saying is bafflingly inappropriate is very purposeful. Well, there's no denying that is purposeful. I mean, there's kind of no denying this movie. Look, I can't help but enjoy a lot about this movie. It is- yes, can't help but enjoy. That is so That is so <laughs> the correct review of Titanic. Because helping enjoying it seems like it's your obligation, but you can't. <laughs> no, I can't. They packed so much movie into this. It's astonishing how well this movie works, given everything about it. <laughs> Remember all those times I said I don't think I can handle a three-hour movie and there's something wrong with three-hour movies? Mm-hmm. I have no problem with this. This uh, just, yeah. just drink it like a glass of water. No problem. The doling out of the adventure disaster story and the romance story and the way that they're intertwined, it's very, very intelligent done very satisfyingly done there's no denying it really there is that's right and i think the fact that it is dumb and a lot of its moves are laughable and a lot of its drama is openly just a series of cliches is part of its strength I thought about how you, in reviewing movies on previous episodes, have a number of times said that something seems really sincere and that gives it power. Mm. 
And I feel like this absolutely does not seem sincere, and that gives it power. It seems really insincere, but earnest. Earnest, but not sincere. Whoa, what's the difference? Let me characterize it for you. It reminded me of like a high school production of a musical where everyone knows that no one here has thought about Oklahoma or the people who live in Oklahoma or who Lori and Curly are. It's just the seniors who can sing doing the lines in the script. And that has no force of sincerity behind it, but it's very earnest. And, you know, you go to a Broadway musical to see a certain kind of cliche executed because that's satisfying. It has that kind of Broadway musical energy that laughing at it takes no strength away from it. (laughs) So you said that Cameron's insight that was borne out by the pocketbooks of the world (laughs) was to make this into a big music video, like play it like a pop song. Which is interesting because it was not Cameron's idea to, in fact, have an enormously popular pop song as the skeleton of the movie and the music. That was Horner's idea. Yeah. Which we obviously have to talk about this song, My Heart Will Go On, which is sung by Celine Dion in the end credits. Yeah, I think Cameron knew that he wanted that feeling, but he still had it in his head that putting actual songs in your movie where someone says some words (laughs) that are about the action of the movie is cheesy, doesn't work out, people make fun of it, it takes you out of the movie. Yeah. So it was making it work that is what Horner did that surprised him. Well, Horner went out and in secret hooked up with a lyricist, had lyrics written to what he had written as the love theme for the movie, and produced a demo of it. What we hear in the final version is Celine Dion's first and only take at recording this just as a demo. And Horner played it for Cameron and decided that he liked it. It's actually hard to imagine Horner having written this score without the idea that the linchpin would be an actual song that (laughs) put actual lyrics to this because it really is how the score is working. I mean, I thought of Dmitry Tiomkin kind of making the same move with the Ballad of High Noon. And I remember me being a little skeptical then that the composer would weave this song melody all through his score and then only after the fact realize that, oh, this could stand on its own. I'm shocked, shocked to learn that we can make a viable (laughs) commercial recording out of this. I think just like Tiomkin did, Horner had this as the plan all along and uh, (laughs) boy, did he make out like a bandit because of it. And don't you agree that this is about as well as it can be done linking a song to a movie? It's amazing what he pulls off in making that link work. He does some very interesting and, yeah, effective things with the melody of this song and having it show up and having it make certain moves. And maybe now would be a good time for me to talk about what I said at the beginning of the episode was my favorite move in the score. Mm -hmm. Because it's in the middle of the song. Oh, of course. I think I remember when we talked about this movie and this music in college, One of us said to the other, you know, what did you think of the music of that? And the other one of us said, well, I like that one change. And we were like, yeah, that one change, that's really cool. Part of what's cool is that it is in the song, and you never hear that change in a song on the radio. Yeah, okay, so can I just talk through what this change is? Please. So there's something in music theory, you know, bear with me just a second, called a deceptive cadence, which means that instead of 
going from the five to the one. Maybe you've heard us talk about the relationship between the five chord and the one chord being the dominant relationship, as it were, and that one is the home base. You go from five to one. That's the most familiar harmonic move to make. Deep in my heart, and my heart will go on and on. That last on, we land on the one. It's the major chord. It's the home base. It feels like we got back home. On and on one. On and on. Exactly. So a deceptive cadence means that instead of going from the five to the one, you go from the five to the six, which is unexpectedly minor. We hear that same melody, except now we get to the last note, and it's the minor six chord. It's a little bit unexpected. It subverts the feeling of resolving to a home base to some degree. That six chord, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that six chord is very important in this song. A lot of things not only land there, but start out there. That's the chord on the word near in near, far, wherever you are. So it gets a lot of mileage out of coming back around to that chord. It doesn't always sound deceptive to be on that chord, but that's the chord that has that function, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that terminology deceptive cadence, which, you know, is from standard classical theory, yeah. it, it might not apply to what's going. It's not necessarily that it's a deception at any point or a surprise even. It's just that you could go to a major place. But he chooses to go to a minor place. There's that feeling. I mean, I picked out what I think was the most deceptive instance of it, where it resolves to the six at the very end instead of the one, which we've heard it do at the end of the song melody already. But yeah, it's not acting deceptively a lot of the times that we hear him playing around that chord. Okay, so what's the special move that he makes? I'm going to call it the double deceptive cadence because it's not only going to the sixth chord where you might have expected it to go to the one, it's going to the sixth chord of a new key. It's a key change, a modulation. It ratchets itself up to the beginning of that progression, but in a different place. has this incredibly propulsive momentum change in it. You can feel the inertia being sculpted, I think, just in the harmonic change. It doesn't have to be moving fast or rhythmically or loud, just moving from this chord to this chord. Feels to me like when a rocket goes around a planet and takes a gravity slingshot. You know, it's a change of direction and a step on the gas. It's a modulation, and the result of the modulation is that we're landing at the beginning of a progression that needs to go on and do other things. Yeah, or actually in the middle, since we know this to be the middle of its progression. A thing that does happen in songs, and that we are a little more accustomed to, is that you go through a whole chorus, and then you get to the end, and then something happens in the instrumental that says, actually, now we're going to go up, and now we're up a third, and we do it again, and there's more energy, or there's a different feeling. Mm -hmm. But you start again from the beginning. From the beginning, yeah, exactly right. This is that up a third ad momentum, but it's crucially and functionally in the middle, so... Right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It harnesses the energy that any modulation upward gives you, which is a common move. Right. But here, it is injected directly into the action rather than just a new plateau that you start again from. What's striking about it to me is that it's a movie 
move. <laughs> it is not a move you hear in songs. It's a kind of a spooky, things might be bigger than you know, kind of movie music change. And he has found a natural, a real way to make it occur in the middle of a very simple progression pop song. He found a way to discover this kind of movie level emotion yeah. in that. And that's very rare. It's a special thing that he's done there. I think it is a special thing. And I think he knows it's a special thing that he's done because he puts that move on so many key moments when it is important to the audience to feel both a heightening and a movement or a change of direction. Like, can I give you a laundry list of times when that shows up in this score? Yeah, I'd love the laundry. I noted the one that's exactly like in the pop song where they're kissing on the prow, which basically is the instrumental version of the song. Well, yeah, that's a key one. And the double deceptive move happens right on the moment when Kate puts her hand on the back of his neck and like is fully leaning into the kiss. It's a point of inflection there. The first time I think we hear it in the movie is when he pulls her back over the railing, you know, saving her from jumping off and committing suicide. The moment when he gets her finally back over the railing, we hear this change. I've got you. We hear this change on the famous moment when she puts her sweaty hand up against the glass of the sweaty interior of the car uh, while some sweaty doings are happening. That change is right on that hand on the glass. It shows up again when they kiss after that, and she goes on to say, I'm going to come with you when we get off the ship. This is crazy. I know. It doesn't make any sense. That's why I trust it. Yeah. I think that is tracked by Cameron in from the other kiss cue. You mentioned that moment when she jumps out of the lifeboat as it's being lowered into the ocean and she jumps back onto the sinking ship. That moment, that crucial change of direction, both a change of direction and a heightening at the same time, that gets the same change. Then to echo that moment when he first pulls her back over the railing, when they wind up back at the railing as the ship is sinking, as the stern is going up in the air, and she says to him, this is where we first met, we hear this same crucial change right on Leo's grimace as he kind of grabs her head to his shoulder. This is where we first met! the ironic potency of here we are where we first met and when this thing happened before and now this is the direction we're going. And then finally, this was tracked in, as we already said, but, you know, it was done to put this change in the right spot. At the very end of the movie, when the ship is coming back to life in Rose's memory in heaven and the camera gets ushered through the doors back to the grand staircase, that passing through the door as the porter's holding is open. Same change. I honestly think that change is the best thing he's written in the movie, and he deploys it very well to tell us how to go around these corners and keep up on momentum and feel change and feel heightening at the same time. That move is like the grand expansion of what the core of the song tune already is, which is the phrase that everyone remembers most of all, near, far, wherever you are.
which is where that minor chord first appears in the song. Right, that near chord is the six again. Right. Before that, you've been hearing da 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 which is all major near the one, just a simple warm major. And then for the chorus, it goes near minor, far major, where eh. And now this is an interesting chord. It's a four chord, but with a non-chord tone on top of it. And then it returns again, da-da-da, back to the minor chord. And so the chorus of this song, this love music that is the heart of the movie, is kind of a swimming in and out of the minor chord. And the minor chord is not a strong arrival. It's where the chorus starts, and then it moves away from it to a different kind of tension and then back into it. And there's, I think, a really well-balanced sense that the particular love song of this particular cheesy love story is one of unresolvable balance between a minor and a major sentiment. That they're always looking back at each other and tending back toward each other. I think that that is just so right for this movie. I think it's part of the money-making machine that the movie became. That it used all of the pleasures of being on this lavish cruise uh, you know they go on a vacation for the first half of the movie they're in a wonderful place with all kinds of spectacular things to see and they're falling in love and it's just a wonderful place in the distant past because in the present it's a wreck on the bottom of the ocean the movie says isn't it poignant to look back and to want to go back which is impossible but you'll never stop thinking about it if you buy another ticket you can see the beginning of the movie again (laughs) there's a kind of circularity to the emotional path that the movie and the music are proposing Mm -hmm. circularity it is circular don't you think yeah it is and that chorus you're right is circling around these minor and major chords and stretching between them the minorness of it will never resolve yeah and the majorness of it is never enough of an answer (laughs) and so the big modulation move that you were pointing out how important it is to the movie it's like this blooming and expanding and rising up of that that circle it doesn't actually answer any of the questions it just makes them bigger in your heart like (laughs) right ah the scale of this circle And that's a little like what I was saying about the John Barry music in Out of Africa. A lot of movies that take kind of a pop song approach to love music try and get at something like that. But I think this is so much better wedded to the action, to the score as a whole, to the audience experience than that was. Yeah, speaking of being wedded to the action, I think something really nice that he does with that part of the song, with the chorus, the near, far, wherever you are, you know, already in the song, the wherever is this big intervallic leap. Right. Ready, you feel the leaping up, this reaching in it, mm-hmm. which of course is evocative of romance and star-crossed romance. Towards the end of the movie, as things are really going badly and the ship is breaking apart and they're running to the stern of the ship, we hear the near and far notes in the score. and kind of goes back and forth a few times. We hear near, far, near, far a little bit. And then at one point, it goes up as though to make the wherever gesture, but it even overshoots Mm -hmm. the already high leap. Mm -hmm. It jumps up farther than you're used to hearing the wherever jump, which just really gives you this 
vertiginous feeling as the stern of the boat is impossibly way up in the air. Just that a couple times and that was really effective for me. Yeah, it's like a cry of pain. Yeah. While we're listening to this, I'll just point out this is the other major action set piece, obviously, the sinking. It goes on for like 12 minutes. And again, I think Horner does a really good job organizing it and differentiating it and guiding you through it in a way that you don't really notice while you're watching. But he's making a lot of careful choices about where to turn a corner and what to emphasize. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for making the editorial flow of these sequences so compelling. And then after the ship goes under and they are in the freezing water, Rose up on her door and Jack not, there's no music for a while. It's getting quiet. Which I think there's a lot of good spotting choices of not having music in this movie as well. I think this plays very well without music. Mm -hmm. You know, this situation where Rose is on this plank or whatever it is, there's been a lot of ink spilled and hands wrung about whether there really was enough room up there for Jack to join her. Did he have to die? You know, James Cameron actually himself appeared on an episode of Mythbusters where they investigated this, and he really endeared himself to me a lot when he showed up on Mythbusters and was a really good sport about testing the science of could they both have floated. And the verdict they come to is that it wouldn't have been buoyant enough to save both of them unless she had taken off her life vest and tied it to the underside of the thing that they were floating on. Hmm. Anyway, what Cameron actually says in the episode of Mythbusters is the most important thing. The script says Jack dies. He has to die. So maybe we screwed up and the board should have been a little tiny bit smaller, but the dude's going down. <laughs> yeah. I can't argue with that. Also, I don't know, like so many other things about this movie, I don't know if it takes away any of its power that that's not entirely satisfying. Because, ooh, if it's not satisfying, <laughs> what are you going to do about it other than watch it again? Yeah, fair. Well, the contribution I want to make is that the discussion about whether Jack could have fit on that particular plank is kind of moot because... The guy with the whistle that Rose swims over to blow the whistle finally when the lifeboat comes back for her, the guy with the whistle is already dead before Jack gives his final speech and sacrifices himself, and he's got a whole chair all to himself. Jack should have swum over and tried to balance on the chair that that guy was floating on. That's what I think. But he's not in love with that guy. Well... (laughs) All right. Uh, That's why I have to see the movie again, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed, John, during this movie, but Jack and Rose are in love. (laughs) Look, why shouldn't they be? They're both very attractive. It's a goofy coupling, though, isn't it? I also think that works to the movie's strength, that they are not actually a traditionally glamorous kind of coupling. They both seem kind of like dorky kids. (laughs) They've both independently distanced themselves from their performances in this movie, basically saying, yeah, I was kind of a dorky kid in that movie. Yeah, it's a dorky movie about dorky kids, and I think that's also a good move. (laughs) Can you imagine a version of this with anyone more kind of adult and suave than either of these two? It would be a completely different movie, and it probably wouldn't work as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I wanted to mention, when you were talking about how, on the one hand, Cameron was very, very concerned with very accurate historical recreation, and on the other hand, wanted to make a modern music video about it. I think that the effort that has been put into the 
authentic recreation of the band playing on the Titanic is very lovely. Yeah, care has been put into the selection and performance of the mm-hmm. dining room music and the quartet that plays on the deck as the sinking. Yeah, it's all very well done. Nearer My God to Thee is one of the finest musical moments in the movie. Oh yeah, and they totally earn that. That really hits home. You know, we're talking about famously the band kept playing on the deck of the Titanic. That's something that people know about the sinking of the Titanic, and so it figures very prominently in the movie, but I think it also figures prominently in the soundscape of it because there are a lot of stretches where intense ship sinking action stuff is happening and we don't hear music about it. We have to juxtapose that with this very pretty early 20th century parlor chamber music selections being played. I will say that I felt bad for the pianists, though, because when they're in the dining room, there's a piano. It's a quintet, string quartet plus piano. When they go outside, we actually see the pianist kind of runs away and just kind of becomes part of the throng of panicked people. The strings get to stay outside and keep playing. So as a pianist, I felt a little indignant about that. Well, that means he might have survived. So, I mean, I'm sure we can look up whether he did because he was a real person. It is strange about this movie, (laughs) how it is a real event. And it's remarkable how it balances the essential distastefulness of turning a real event into the biggest show on earth with what feels like a genuine interest in doing justice to this thing and getting people to have sympathy for the truth of it. It's remarkable to me that it doesn't offend. Well, I think that hearing the band play against all this tense stuff actually plays a big part in people having sympathy for the truth of it. It feels like a very true thing to have to reckon with. You really have to think about this is what these people were hearing this thing was doing and then we get to see the decision that the musicians make to keep on playing I think that's really handled very well and yeah the payoff of it is that we get to hear them play this very lovely chorale style hymn as all of the uh, higher ups on the ship are sort of making the decision to go down with the ship and it works beautifully it does probably apocryphal that that's the last thing they played but it works really well in the movie There is another non-James Horner group playing music on this, and I think we should talk about that because we haven't really used the word Irish. I said Celtic a couple times in relation to Enya, but there is a proposal throughout the movie on James Horner's part, but clearly on James Cameron's part because he puts this whole sequence with the Irish traditional musicians who are down in the third class playing the real party with real dancing and drinking. And they're playing a real. R-E-E-L is the name of an Irish dance like this. They're playing a, a real Irish reel, exactly. There is this idea throughout the movie that something essentially Irish is going on. That the tale of the Titanic ought to be accompanied by the sounds of the Irish pipes, the Illin pipes, and the Irish penny whistle, and the Irish folk tunes. Yeah, I mean, those are the instruments that get the melody of the love song during the body of the movie before we hear Celine Dion singing it, really. They also get this flip side of the love song theme. It's a separate theme, but he's very happy to show you that it interleaves very closely with the love song. inclined to think of it as the Irish theme, the Celtic theme in the movie. Sure. It's supposed to sound like a folk tune, right? Right, right, right. That's the first thing we hear. The first thing you hear. It's the first thing you hear in the pop arrangement of the love song. Right. 
you hear it a couple times juxtaposed sort of mysteriously with the love theme itself. I think one explanation for this is simply that it is part of the overarching Enya pastiche that's going on here. I think this sounds like different Enya tracks that were probably in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's some Enya. And in fact, while we're on the subject, even the love song, even My Heart Will Go On, I would say originates as an Enya pastiche because she has a lot of these tracks that are like this. They're a kind of new age piano trance out of ones, fours, fives, and sad sixes. And the arrangement of the love song that you hear through the movie has very much that kind of new age piano voicing where it's just kind of fifths moving around in a very rudimentary way. Yeah, I mean, the version of the love theme that plays on the piano and only the piano during the memorable scene when Jack is drawing Rose, like one of his French girls, we hear this theme on the piano and it sounds exactly like it is the sheet music, you know, the pop arrangement that you could buy the sheet music and play at home it doesn't sound much more accomplished or realized than right i wrote that it sounds like the windham hill soft background arrangement of theme from titanic that they are playing <laughs> at the dining room at your bed and breakfast and you wish they would shut it off right or at the hotel lobby yeah you know the department store yeah it's a uh... the actual thing already is its own music cover And I was really surprised that it never expands to include more instruments than piano. You know, there's an obvious spot to do that when the dialogue stops and it kind of takes on this more montage-y feel as, you know, kind of crossfading these shots of their eyes back and forth. And boy, I I would have put a string entrance there. I think a piano solo is fine, but it, again, wears its influence too openly. Hmm. To my mind, the failing here is that it sounds like borrowing some other kind of music and that sound of borrowing is unsatisfying to me but i'll return to this later back to the concept of irishness i think some of the irishness comes as i said from enya i also think some of it comes from james horner's score to braveheart that james cameron surely had on his desk in which horner somewhat notoriously used the irish pipes rather than the scottish pipes because they're prettier and uh, the Irish penny whistle and just some sort of pan-Celtic sounds to represent Scotland. Yeah, I mean, I think the Braveheart score was one of the crucial elements that brought Cameron back to Horner. He was a fan of that score, and that prompted him to reach back out to him for this score. But of course, Braveheart is about the history of Scotland, a Scottish hero. (laughs) It is a deeply Scottish-themed movie, whereas this is a movie about a ship full of Americans, mostly. It leaves from England, and it was built in Ireland, but we don't see Ireland. There is one Irish character named, like, Irish (laughs) O'Character. And yet we're hearing the sound of the Green Hills the whole time. What do you think of that? Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of it. I'm not sure exactly why. You know, that Irish guy, at one point he says, you know, this is an Irish ship because it was built by Irish hands. (laughs) Right. 
But yeah, I don't quite buy that. I mean, it's a nice energy that we get to hear this traditional Irish dance music when Jack and his Italian buddy, I think his name is uh, Italiano Caracterini, <laughs> when the two of them are running to get on the ship in the first place, we hear this Irish music. A welcome energy, but I don't... Yeah, well, I think it is a welcome energy, and it's a welcome sentiment, and it's a welcome sense of mystery and depth. It's a welcome everything, but here's where the shadow of the future really starts to bother me. Ah. Because what's really going on here, it seems to me, is that this keening voice is like singing out of the depths of folk. The mists of... Uh, exactly. Yes. She's coming out of the mists of time and folk spirituality to sing about what tragedy means and what loss means and what love means. I can't deny that that has an effect, but I don't think it is healthy or good that it had such an effect in this movie that it became standard practice. Mm. I don't like that movies have made the idea of deep feeling be some kind of mythological, distant, fake folk thing that you have to exoticize. Yeah. I don't think it's really fair to uh, the Irish people in third class either to suggest <laughs> that somehow, well, they're closer to, you know, the woman putting the kids to bed and telling them a folk tale. This kind of kitschy, convenient use of folk to stand in, to be feeling for us, to feel deep things. It just makes less and less sense as you go forward from here. And I feel like this is a major original sin of that because, yes, Far and Away is about Irish immigrants and Braveheart. It's about Braveheart. And then if you play the Braveheart music over your footage of Titanic, <laughs> yes, of course, it has an effect. And soon we don't know what we're doing or why, and I don't like that. Well, speaking of playing the Braveheart music over the footage of Titanic, here is the lead-up to the Battle of Falkirk in Braveheart. And here is the lead-up to the lookouts in the crow's nest seeing the iceberg. You know, I still like this cue. <laughs> I still like the uh, hard to starboard cue. I mean, those chords work. Why not use them? I want to give a lot of stuff in this movie credit for being... We have. Good news. For being brilliant in kind of a mercenary sense that it gets yeah. the job done, including on me. It pulls me in and has an effect on me. But I dislike the sense that it is actively lowering my standards and Hollywood's standards <laughs> for what counts as having felt your way through a story and what counts as composing and what counts as... Yeah. It's like the movie makes you dumber as you watch it. And I am totally part of that. that <laughs> me too. Yeah, because uh, Demoiselle d'Avignon did not sink on the Titanic. Why did they put that there? <laughs> to, to, like, we know exactly where that painting is right now. We see some Monets and we see some Degas and Degas painted a lot of ballerinas and Monet painted painted a lot of water lilies. Maybe those are other versions of famous paintings, but I don't think Picasso painted a lot of Demoiselle d'Avignon. Well, maybe he painted Study for Demoiselle d'Avignon, which is a slightly smaller square with the faces very slightly moved around. Uh, lost. Unknown. I think the dumbest line in the movie is when <laughs> she says, someone Picasso. Yes! <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. It would be so much better if it was, oh, I don't know, Pablo someone, and the audience got to fill in the actual name. Logic. What's the artist's name? Something Picasso. 
something Picasso. He won't amount to a thing. That's correct. My theory is that the line was written as Pablo someone, <laughs> and then there was a discussion about how dumb is the audience, and they looked on their dumbometer, and they were like, you know what? It's right below that, so we got to switch it up. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, I don't know. It's something Pablo Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, is there is there anything else we need to talk about? Are we going to talk about the pictures of Rose's amazing life? What about them? She rode an elephant. Uh-huh. She visited an African tribe. She caught a really huge fish. She's amazing. She rode the roller coaster on the Santa Monica Pier? That's right, as instructed by Jack Dawson. Yeah, good for her. She flew an airplane. And she got a glamour headshot, <laughs> much like the one that Gloria Stewart actually had in the 30s. Oh, that's true. But it's Kate Winslet doing it, which is cool. She lived a wonderful life, and I think so has this episode, and it's time for it to be over. <laughs> All right. There's a quote that I wanted to read at some point in this episode, so I will read it now. This comes from Don Davis, who was an orchestrator who worked with Horner on this score and other scores, and is also a composer in his own right, wrote the Matrix scores. He said about Titanic, I gained a lot of respect for Horner during Titanic because Horner was accommodating Cameron in ways that I thought a composer of the stature of Horner had no reason to accommodate anyone. <laughs> he completely handled the situation with absolute humility and professionalism. I don't think there are very many composers who would have acquiesced to Jim Cameron the way Horner did. Horner gave Jim exactly what he wanted. I think there are some people who think that the Titanic score may be overly simplistic, or some people object to the Celtic nature of it or whatever, but I can tell you that if any other composer had scored that picture, Jim would have fired him and at least four other composers before he got what he wanted. Horner was determined that that would not happen, and it didn't happen, and I think it was the best score that Jim would ever allow into that picture. <laughs> For that reason, I think he deserves all the Academy Awards and accolades that he got. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> quite a statement, and I, I think I'm going to pull that across as my closing statement. I think that that sums it up beautifully. This is obviously a work of accomplishment and professionalism that has some decisions in it that I find baffling and <laughs> ineffective, but I can't deny the overall undeniability of the whole endeavor and Cameron was going to have it be this way and he had it be this way and uh, he's laughing all the way to the bank about it I certainly want to grant Horner that kind of respect for working under the conditions that someone else was making the big artistic choices they aren't on him mm -hmm. and unlike you I do think that some of James Cameron's tacky decisions are also effective decisions but I do hold against Horner that I've talked in the past about how exciting I find the eclecticism of movie music, about how eclectic and strange the mixed influences on an Alex North or a Jerry Goldsmith score are. Mm -hmm. I love that, and I feel like in the 90s, through scores like this, there was kind of a slide from a thrilling eclecticism to just the sound of a temp track, a magpie style, a borrowing style, an assembled sound of different stuff that comes from different voices and doesn't have the sound of being composed together. The way that John Williams composed the temp score together into the Star Wars score. Yes, exactly. There's a kind of synthesis of disparate stuff that can be very exciting when it is done in a score. And I feel like the last 20 years, say, have seen a lot of movie music that sounds like it is a temp score, even though it's the final score. Mm -hmm. I think Horner does unquestionably have his own voice, and I think it comes through the strongest in the singing, sentimental, long-lined themes that he writes. And there are some very touching ones in here, and I think those are the places where his 
obligation to digest and recompose Enya is the clearest. He has really digested it and recomposed it into that song, My Heart Will Go On. But I, I just hear in this score, and I see looming in the future beyond this score. <laughs> like an iceberg. Like an iceberg. The impulse to just put a little of this here because it kind of makes you feel something, and a little of this here because it kind of makes you feel something, and make sure you can't get sued for any of it, and you're done. <laughs> and that hurts me even as it's working on me because I feel like that is the way in which I'm being made dumber. Like, example, in the scene when Billy Zane finally realizes he's lost and it's over with Rose and and he pulls out a gun and runs after them with a gun shooting at them and we get this shock effect which is pounding drums and a cluster glissando in the strings. Where are we? What what movie is this from? I guess any movie. I guess all movies are the same movie. It just doesn't feel like it has anything to do with the style or the place or the voice. It's just a thing. Stick it in there. Do one of those. Okay. While we were listening to this, I did happen to hear some John Williams music. I forget why. I put something on or I happened to see something. And I thought, oh, this music is owning the role of storyteller and host and organizer of the drama. It's a real voice speaking consistently throughout. And the Titanic score has, I don't know, an aesthetic, a feel of distractedness to it that just got deeper and deeper after this. So that's what haunts me as I listen to this and can't deny, enjoy it. (laughs) You know, the... um... The lyrics to My Heart Will Go On, the lyrics contain the line, Love was when I loved you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> love was when I loved you One true time I hold you um, the lyrics are both bad and good. It's just the way this movie is. They are not good lyrics, and they are doing it exactly right. That's why I brought it up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tautology, but, uh, you know, it's, you can't deny that it's true. <laughs> Last week I was talking to my sister about Titanic, and she said, every time I see that on TV, I think, this is not a great movie. But also, this is a great movie. <laughs> and it is. It is both things at once. Unstoppably both things at once Mm -hmm. and that means we should be wary of it (laughs) love was when i loved you let's get out the bucket and give ourselves something new to talk about i want to do something uh not like this that's what i said last time too yeah hopefully it's something that you feel real enthused about that would be nice i would like it to be something that i feel really enthused about i feel like we haven't done something that we have both been unabashedly enthused about in a little while all right i have generated a random number but in radio space i am reaching into a bowl what what are we doing it's a, it's a ball machine it's a ball machine i've been picturing the kind with a cage that you spin and then yeah, eventually yeah. one of them drops with, down. like a bingo machine with a crank that's what i think okay i'm reaching into some source of many different numbered balls and i am pulling out one and it says that the next thing we are going to talk about is uh-huh. north by Northwest, 1959. Oh, right. Bernard Herrmann. Oh, okay. This could not have been more exactly what I was hoping the bucket would produce. John, you got your wish. I got my wish. <laughs> Thank you, bucket. When's the last time we did Bernard Herrmann? We've done a bunch of them, but it's been a while now. We've only done two. Psycho and Vertigo. Psycho and Vertigo. Both Hitchcock movies, and here's another one. You know he scored non-Hitchcock movies, but uh, I guess this is what's next for us. 
A beloved movie and a beloved score. A beloved movie, a beloved score. This is where we need to go. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Hard a starboard to this movie. Yeah. Next time, we promise to, once and for all, nail down how we are pronouncing Bernard Herman. <laughs> yeah. Some people have... Uh, complained about our inconsistency with that we'll either do a show about bernard herman or bernard herman we'll tell you which it is next time <laughs> and if you uh, want to chime in with how you think we should be pronouncing it as many people have already done you can, <laughs> can write to us on twitter at score settlers yeah this is a case where i've known the correct thing for a long time but Prior to that, was doing it wrong in my head, and when I'm talking, I forget to correct myself. But I'm going to stop forgetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get it right. Please uh, leave us a review in your podcast app. It helps people to find the show. And, uh, and tell your friends. Yeah, tell your friends. Tell us. Get in touch. Don't get in touch. Keep listening. Thank you for your listenership. Thank you for your listener boat. We'll be back soon enough. Love was when I loved you. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. <laughs>